I got to tell you, y'all sound great this morning. I'm just so encouraged at the, the volume and, the, and how well you're doing with singing. And then I think about the future, and I think, you wait till we get Macaria Sanders on staff this summer. He's teaching us all kinds of music. We're going to give the Mormons and that tabernacle choir run for the money. So, y'all please turn to no expectations there. Sorry. Yeah, and she's now decided to leave and become a Methodist. Sorry about that. Uh, y'all turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at two verses today. Two verses you're very familiar with as we began our journey with 1 Thessalonians with a theme of living in the light of the return of Jesus Christ. This has been the benediction uh, that we have used, that I have used uh, for every single service. So you're going to find it uh, uh, as we see Paul closing up here and giving a benediction to the Thessalonians, I think you're going to find it a great source of comfort to actually know some of the, the principles that are involved in that benediction, what it might uh, mean to us. But first of all, I just want to mention to you good old John Newton. We, you know, we love John Newton, wrote Amazing Grace, and uh, with William Cooper wrote the Only Hymns, which have been just a, a profound influence. One of his best things he does, he befriended the, the depressed William Cooper and helped him to stay in the fight and bring us a legacy of, uh, of great, rich hymns. You know, that's what friends do. They take the suffering from you and share it with you. And that's what Newton did. But in his older days, and you see this in that movie, Amazing Grace, his older days, he was blind. Uh, he was becoming quite feeble, and he had lots of time to reflect upon his life. And in preparation for when he himself would actually see Jesus Christ with eyes, not just with faith, he decided to tell us and to decided to inscribe his own tombstone. And this, to this day, if you go visit the tomb of John Newton, it states this. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. That's powerful, isn't it? That's powerful in terms of confession. He never forgot what he was, but he never forgot who he is and who he would be. And he wanted the world to know that he had been redeemed and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So he embossed that upon his tombstone, knowing that his time was coming. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing for us today. As he is closing this emphasis upon the return of Jesus Christ, he's given us what have been called staccato imperatives, things that we need to do in preparation of the return of Christ. To, because every one of us are either going to see him in the sky or we're going to see him face to face when, we, when our spirit departs from this pod, body. It is going to come. You cannot imagine how fast you turn gray. It's coming, folks. So what does Paul want you to do? What does the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scripture want you to do in the preparation for the day that you will see Christ face to face? Again, as Paul closes up this letter, he gives us several things beginning in verse 15. Do not repay evil for evil. Seek after that which is good. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now he's going to tell us how is it that God is going to accomplish those things or how you're going to accomplish those things through God. And it's going to be through this process of sanctification because he wants the Thessalonians and God wants you to follow a course of holy living until the return 
of Christ himself. And that's our goal today, that we would be able to live sanctified lives entirely in anticipation of that day we will see Christ face to face. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in faith, we turn to you, God. Uh, we have never seen you face to face, but we believe uh, not only are you in our lives, you are in this place. And we have gathered together in a family reunion of the people of God to be able to glorify the name of our Father through his Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we pray for your abiding presence, Lord, and we just need you to break through uh, our hesitancies, our fears, our anxieties, uh, our regrets, our shame, and show us what it means to be sanctified. Some of us perhaps are at the point of, of ready to give up. Uh, we are addicted to certain pleasures. We are uh, consumed with certain thoughts. Uh, we, uh, we go between arrogance and melancholy. God, we need your help. We need the abiding presence of the Lord. We need a sanctifying spirit. We need this benediction of sanctification to be true in our lives. Would you please help us to, to live holy lives in anticipation of your return? or our death. In Christ's name, we pray this prayer. Amen. Again, we're looking at just these two verses here, and I will read those in its entirety, and then we will break those down to three different uh, uh, headings here. <clears throat> Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. God says, the apostle Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. And you might uh, use your home group help inserts to help take notes for you. And then there's some reflective questions on the other side to help you maybe uh, go a little bit deeper to, as the Puritans say, chew the cud uh, upon this verse here, but you'll find here uh, three different categories that I've come up with. Uh, there's sanctification source in verse 23a, sanctification's purpose in verse 23b, and sanctification's guarantee in verse 24. Uh, let's begin, first of all, here with sanctification source in verse 23a. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Have you ever noticed how consumed with the glory of God is the Apostle Paul. He just, he is so, for, here's a guy who lived for himself. He was the young Turk of Judaism. He had tried to crush uh, uh, the, uh, the very young Christian movement here. And now he, all he wants to do is direct you not towards him, but towards God here. He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. This idea of sanctification is very important and quite frankly, not emphasized uh, often. You've got to get your category straight. Every time I preach a sermon, every time we have a service of worship, anybody who's watching on the Internet, there's two kinds of people on the planet. Both of those kind of people contain both every tribe, people from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. All right? So it's not black and white, not slave or free, not male or female, not children or adult. There are two types of people, the saved and the unsaved, the redeemed, the unredeemed, the Christian and the unchristian. When he is talking about sanctification, he is talking to Christians. He is talking to Christians. Salvation is for those who need to be saved. So this is an emphasis on sanctification. But what I would like is for you non-Christians, those who have not taken the step of faith here, to be in a sense jealous of the things that a Christian has that you do not have. 
and that you would submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So what does sanctify mean? It means to set apart, to separate from sin to holiness. Paul uses the optive move here, which expresses a wish and a desire. It is his heartfelt desire that the Thessalonians be sanctified, they be set apart, that they would be marked out as a holy people. The Westminster Confession of Faith, question number 35, again, the basis of our Constitution and other uh, British uh, tradition uh, reformed churches, ask the question, what is sanctification? The answer is sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live on to righteousness. And that emphasis there is on God's free grace. It is a grace to save you. It is a grace to sanctify you. And he says here, and may the God himself of peace sanctify you entirely. This source of our salvation, a God, is God himself. Himself is, is in the emphatic position. He is not delegating this to anyone else. Angels don't sanctify you. Pastors don't sanctify you. Your own just total self-control does not sanctify you. It's God himself who sanctifies you. Y'all, that it could not be more clear. He didn't just say God. He said God himself is the one who sanctifies you here. So it's important that we understand that he's the one that accomplishes this great work. Remember, the Westminster Confession said it's a work of God's free grace here. And we are to receive this action of renewal. All the way back, talking about the new covenant in Ezekiel, 500 years before Jesus ever walked on the earth, he said in part of that new covenant, I, God's talking, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. God is the one who puts the spirit in. God is the one who causes you in towards his action. Now, you're not a passive partner in this. You are when you get saved, but you have to cooperate with that sanctification. We'll talk about that, too. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forevermore. So there is an expectation that you are to grow in what God is already allowing you to do. That you are to work along with the Holy Spirit in sanctification. And what happens? He, I love this, this, this reference here that God is the God of peace. Isn't that what we want almost more than anything? Yes, peace on earth, but there's just peace tranquility. John Stott says that God is the author of harmony, the author of harmony. You know, that's a big deal because if you look at Romans 5, for instance, one of the things you realize about the natural human condition, we are born rascals. We are born enemy. We are born in rebellion against God. We are born to shake our fists towards heaven and to run away from him. But in the transformation that comes through, the, the, through the, the, the Holy Spirit coming inside a believer, he takes him from foe to friend, from enemy to child here. And because of that, we can have peace. One commentator said this, holiness and peace are inseparable. Believers cannot experience uh, the peace of God except in the pursuit and experience of God's holiness. In linking the two, Paul shows that the only way to be really happy is to be holy. Now, there's a lot of miserable Christians out there, and there's a million reasons for that. Sometimes we just have a bad day. We just have a bad day. Sometimes we're tired. 
Sometimes we should not have eaten at the all-you-can-eat taco bar the night before. There's a lot of reasons why we may be in the bad mood. But a lot of it is because we still are not, we are not working in communion with the Holy Spirit to overcome that cause us guilt and shame. We're not where we know we need to be. And we have blown opportunities to walk in holiness. We have, we have taken the shortcut towards pleasure, towards sloth, towards gossip, whatever it might be. You fill in the blank with your pet sin. Instead of doing the hard work of going the long way in faith and knowing that the peace that's available through obedience in the long run is much better than the momentary pleasure that comes with sin. Because what's going to happen after that sin? You're going to feel the guilt and the shame. Why don't we just cut that middle man out and just go straight to holiness, right? Oh, it's so easy on Sunday morning, isn't it? I just wish y'all could get your act together like mine. Uh, I have the act together. So. Please do not ask Mrs. Campbell about that. Though. And then notice this, that he wants to cycle. And you got to have these ideals. Paul is so idealistic here, but he's idealistic in a holy way. you got to have these ideals because we have to have something to strive for. That's where the joy is in, 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 in just moving uphill in victory. And when we fall, getting back up. He says we're going to be sanctified entirely. That means all the way through. Peter wrote, as, uh, he, as, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Your default setting, Christian, is holiness. Holiness. And that means you're going to have to say no to hormones, glandular impulses, the temptation of the devil, the whispers of the evil one, the, 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 uh, the bangles and spangles and the shiny stuff of this world. You're going to have to be one of those weird people that's going to say no to that stuff. You're going to say no to that stuff because you want something deeper, more abiding more powerful than what the world offers. Sanctified entirely involves three aspects of sanctification. First of all, there's a past or positional sanctification. You were sanctified the day Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit saved you. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14 say this, by this will we have, we have, we have been sanctified. And he's talking to, he's actually talking to Christians who are thinking about apostatizing, who are leaving the faith. By this, you will have been sanctified through the offering of the blood, body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by offering, he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. He, the, notice the past tense here. Here, listen, folks, if you were born again, you are sanctified. You are set apart. You don't get to heaven by your performance. You get to heaven by Jesus' performance. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is there. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Boy, that's probably one of the first verses a new convert uh, learns, isn't it? We are a new creature because that's what we want. We're tired of being the old creature. Sometimes it's a monster. I'm not being emotional. It's just... It is obvious that spring has come. Past or, present, past or positional sanctification. You are sanctified. But there's a present sanctification. And this is normally the emphasis of the Apostle Paul. Okay, okay you, were the, you were there, but you've just begun the journey. 
It's not like, you know, it, this is one of the emphasis, the, the problems with, with the, the constant emphasis on getting saved, getting saved, getting saved, getting saved. Now, that's appropriate. Evangelism should be a part of every service, of, of every Christian's desire to see lost people saved. But, w- but when everything is focused on that, it's almost like, okay, I'm born again now. Woohoo! Let's just, we can, ch- we can chill for the rest of our lives. No, you've just begun the journey. That burden has just fallen off. You still got the rest of your life to make it to the celestial city. And there's going to be temptations and pitfalls and beasts and giants and and angels and everything else on the way. But you've just begun. So the present sanctification is important here. It's the experiential growth of holiness in our lives. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, says this. A sanctified person bears not only God's name, but his image. Have you ever been around... They're usually pretty old, but ever been around just a, 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 a Christian who has been trained over the years by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the ministry of the word, by fellowship, by obedience, and they just almost glow. There's just a calmness about them, a peace about them. There's something that's so attractive about them. That's the kind of people we want to be. We want to we be the old guy in the retirement home that the nurses think is just wonderful, right? Because instead of you know, complaining about the lime jello all the time or whatever, we're just talking about how much we love the Lord, how much we're looking forward to, to seeing him. That's the kind of person. Well, that doesn't start when you're 84. That starts now to be that kind of person here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image by glory unto glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. We are that caterpillar who is being metamorphosized into the glorious butterfly, but we will not see all that glory until the day that we breathe our last breath until the return of Christ and we're reunited with our resurrected bodies. First uh, Corinthians chapter one, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this is this is uh, our purpose. Also, our labor striving according to his power, which mighty works within us. Paul, Paul did not want to present to the Lord wet clay. He wanted a full, a full vessel that had been glazed and and fired and it could be, be, could be presented to the Lord. He didn't want to do anything halfway, half done, a half-baked casserole. He wanted everything to be, to be complete. Philippians chapter 2. So then, my beloved, just as I've always obeyed, not only you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work with you, both to will and to work His good pleasure. Here you see two sides of the same coin of sanctification. It is God's work of free grace and you are to work. This will not be experienced unless you just sweat it out. Now, that's not legalism. That's obedience. That's what a Christian wants to do. So if you if you are listening to this message, you think, oh, man, I'm sanctified already. You know what? I'm not going to obey anymore. By the way, first of all, I question your salvation. Because a Christian wouldn't say that. They want to make their daddy happy. They want, just like a child wants to make their daddy happy. But second of all, all the, all the references, Paul always starts off with the, uh, the indicatives, who you are in Christ. But then he always concludes with imperatives. There is a, to, to live out this indicative, who you are in Christ, you've got to obey. You've got to obey. 
Now, we don't do it to earn God's favor. We do it because we love him. We do it and because, he, because the church needs us to walk in obedience. You know, we, don't, we want to be the Thessalonian church. We don't want to be the Corinthian church. It, just, it, was a, it was a train wreck. It was a dumpster fire for a church, partly because they did not get this concept here. They used the grace as a libertinism to do whatever they wanted to. Ephesians chapter 4, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old manner of life, that you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance to the lust of deceit, and that you renew in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Paul uses this illustration often. It's like you have this old garment. And it's covered with the filth of this world and the filth of your own sin. And we lay that aside and we put on the robes of righteousness that God has given us. But there's this temptation to go back. I really miss that old garment. You know, it's kind of cold. I think I'll, I think I'll just, maybe I'll just hold part of it. Maybe I'll just kind of put it on my lap here. Maybe I'll just sort of put rear it around like, like a shawl. No, that thing's gone. It's gone. You keep it off. And you keep these robes of righteousness. But that one felt really good. Yeah. It did. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if it doesn't feel good, if it doesn't give you some sort of pleasure, it's not really a temptation, right? But the new garment, again, it's the long-lasting pleasure of being a Christian. Recognizing and still keeping an eye on that old garment because you need to remember what it was that you were like before you came to know the Lord. Again, John Newton. John Newton was at the point where he was, uh, he was so blind, people would have to read to him. <laughs> And someone read this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it says that by the grace of God, I am by what I am. And old John Newton sat back and kind of pondered that thought for a while. And then he said this, I am not what I ought to be. Oh, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I might be considering my privileges and opportunities. I am not what I wish to be. God knows my heart, knows I wish to be like him. I am not what I hope to be. Before long, I will drop this clay tabernacle to be like him and see him as he is. Yes, I am not what I once was, a child of sin and a slave of the devil. Though not all these, not what I ought to be, not what I might be, not what I wish to be, and not what I once was. I think I can truly say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God could just take you straight up to heaven. He could do that. He could do that. Sometimes he, sometimes he almost does do that. But you're here for a purpose, and that purpose is to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that the work that you're accomplishing has already be done, been done by Jesus Christ. Then we get to this aspect, future sanctification. That's the aspect discussed next when Paul says, your spirit, your soul, your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Joseph Cardell says this, perfect holiness is the aim of the saints on earth and is the reward of saints in heaven. Your labor will pay off one day. I don't know how it's going to work, but whatever you do for the glory of God in terms of obedience, the things you say no to, the things you say yes to, will be rewarded one day. And you will see that great reward. And you will be in the company of the saints that have gone before. And you will think at that moment, everything was worth it. Everything was worth it. So now let's talk about the salvation's 
uh, sanctification's purpose in verse 23b. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the eighth reference of the return of Jesus Christ in this letter. And he says here, your spirit, soul, and body be preserved. Now, some folks have kind of looked at this and say, uh, Paul is trying to teach a theological truth here, uh, that there's a difference between your spirit and your soul, and there's obviously a difference between your body. And these folks are trichotomous. They think there's something different there. Other people say, no, no, it's just spirit and soul are used interchangeably by Paul. Uh, Most of the commentators I looked at, and I think most of our tradition would affirm the the dichotomous tradition. What he's trying to do, he's not trying to teach you there's a difference between soul and spirit because other times he uses those words interchangeably. What he's trying to do, he's trying to get to every single, every single atom of your existence. Because we are spiritual people with a body. We're not physical people with a spirit. Every single bit of your existence uh, is, is involved with this sanctification process because it is to be complete. And that is with inte- integrity, total, intact, and undamaged. Again, going back to the Westminster Confession of Faith, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby he's renewed in the whole man. There's no aspect of you that is not affected by this. Uh, and, and this is important. It's important, too, that it includes body. Now, again, if those of you who've studied Greek culture, who understand philosophy and that kind of thing, the Greeks had a very low view of the physical. The physical was all corrupt and bad. The spiritual was all good. And it's interesting. You, you, I mean, you could kind of understand why they'd say that sometimes. But one reason why they stuck to that is because, hmm, if the body doesn't matter and it's all about the soul, I can do whatever I want to with my body. That's actually the motivation behind a lot of people who deny creation. If we're just advanced swamp monkeys, and if we are just some sort of cosmic accident, then I can do anything I want to do. There's no accountability, and the body doesn't matter. Well, Paul's saying that's not the belief of a Christian. Your body really does matter. Indeed, it's going to be reborn. It's going to be reunited with your departed spirit at the return of Jesus Christ. So all of these things matter. This was an emphasis, again, on the Corinthian church that was struggled so much with obedience. Or do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God where? Glorify God in your body. He's not letting them get away with this Greek philosophical nonsense. God created the body. The body, all things that are physical are good. So that's the way, the the view of the Christian here. And notice this. I love this text. Without blame. He's going to preserve you without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to experience ultimate sanctification when we experience glorifications. Philippians 3 says this, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? Transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he is even to subject all things to himself. Again, when you get a little bit older and your social life seems to revolve around which doctor you're going to (laughs) that week, and when you show up at the gym and, you know, you have to, you come to the next machine and you have to move the weights back up, you know, and that kind of thing. You can really appreciate this. Some of you young people may not realize how wonderful this truth is, is that our body is going to be transformed from a humble state to look like his resurrected body. 
That's a pretty amazing promise. And that's an encouragement. And that is going to happen. That is going to happen no matter what happens to you in the doctor's office, no matter what procedure you have to go through. It is going to happen. It's just we're going to have to perhaps wait for a little while. When I think was thinking about the the Spirit, what the Spirit does with us and how he sets us aside, I, the, the, the thought kept coming to mind, the old historical account of uh, Solomon dedicating the temple. You remember that? And uh, Solomon, finally, after all those years, David got the supplies. Solomon built the temple. It was ready to be dedicated. And they brought in just massive amounts of oxen and sheep and things like that. Just want to pick up on part of that in Second Chronicles chapter 7. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of God filled the house. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. And all the sons, seeing the fire, came down from the glory of God upon the house, bowed down on the pavement, their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave praise to God, saying, Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. And thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace, and successfully completed all that he had planned to do for the house of the Lord and his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said, For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. When someone becomes a Christian... It's less dramatic. It may not be obvious to anyone. It may not even initially be obvious to the person himself. But when someone becomes a Christian, almost the exact same thing happens. And God says, for now I have chosen and consecrated this person that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Folks, it's just worth the struggle. It's just worth the struggle. And now we see sanctification's guarantee. God is so good to give us promises. Uh, he, he cannot lie. He will keep his promises despite what the devil tells you at times. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Just, that's it. Quick little summary there. Again, going back to the Westminster Confession, this time chapter 36, it says, What are the benefits which accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The answer, the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, that's how you start adoption, that's part of the process, and then sanctification, are assurance of God's love. Don't you need that? Don't you need that? Assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, Joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and the final one, which is his point here, perseverance therein to the end. You cannot lose your salvation. It cannot be taken away from you. Whatever the Father gave to the Son, no one will be able to snatch you out. You will persevere to the end. Paul says this in Philippians. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. With this idea of the return of Christ, Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
For this imperishable must put on the, and this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on the immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about a saying that was written, death is swallowed up in victory. You know what I love about this text? Um, lots of it. I use it in every funeral I've ever conducted. He's mocking death. He's mocking death. The thing that people are so afraid of, Jesus conquered. He conquered death. He was resurrected. If you're a believer, you will be resurrected. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, from the dead, to have obtained an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What Paul is closing with here is kind of a, 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 a theological lesson on a prayer that he prayed back in chapter 3. Now may the God and Father himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as he also will do for you. So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. So there ought to be a just settled confidence that God is working in you that he is sanctifying you, and that we need to remember, and this is a challenge from a commentator, that sanctification is God's priority for your life. In a sense, nothing else matters than your sanctification. You, have, you will recognize Jesus as Lord over your life. How do you want to serve him? It might, you know, who you marry, do you, have, you know, do you have kids, what your career is going to be, where you live, all those kind of things. Those things are not something that God's just disinterested in. But the overarching principle of your life is this pursuit of sanctification because that's where you're going to see your joy. Because let me tell you, school, your degree, will eventually disappoint at some point in time. Children will probably disappoint at some point in time. Your house will disappoint sometime. Every decision you make, how many of you are already pretty disappointed in the tat you got last summer all right every decision you make but sanctification is cleansing sanctification is hope reviving sanctification is powerful that's our ambition that's what we live for to glory glorify god titus 2 says this he who who gave himself up to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession they should be zealous for good deeds. I want to go back and just in closing, just revisit two points. First of all, this idea of the God of peace, uh, the God of harmony. And I want to relate, some of y'all heard this, I want to relate to you an experience I had. It's one of my earliest childhood memories. Now, you have to be careful with experiences. You know, we Calvinists are a little, a little afraid of experiences sometimes. But every now and then, God gives us a legitimate experience. Now, if your experience is counter to Scripture, it's not from God, okay? And I remember a lady uh, that was here from one of the rescue missions one time. Uh, I, I made uh, some comment about experience I had one time. I don't have lots of them, but every now and then she called them God winks. 
thought that was kind of clever, just kind of a little reminder I'm here with you and that I have a plan. But this experience goes way back. I think I was 10. Uh, It was our old house on Kilburn Road in Columbia. We had gone to church uh, at Easter. And uh, I was raised in the Episcopal Church. And uh, I had the the bulletin, which the the, the liturgy is all written out for you, uh, which cut very nice. And it was just one of those just amazingly gorgeous Easter Sundays. The azaleas were blooming. Uh, uh, the grass was green. The birds were flying. The temperature was perfect and that kind of thing. And I remember coming home from church, and I had made a tent in the backyard. I stretched a cord, a rope, uh, prop. Or, or probably my dad's jumper cable, so that I stretched them across two pine trees, and I had a piece of plywood on one side and a bed sheet on the other side, and I had this little tent down there shaped like this. And I remember just being drawn to go inside that tent. And there in that little tent, I had a little worship service. I had no idea what I was. I'm, I'm not sure. I was a late reader. I'm not sure I could even read. And I'm going through the service there by myself in this little tent on a spring day in Columbia, South Carolina, when I was in... Uh, Fourth grade, third grade, I don't know. I repeated a few grades. I can never keep up. And the thing I remember, and I don't know why I remember the thing, I was not alone. I was not alone. That God of harmony, that God of peace was there with me. And that just stuck with me. It was one of those God winks, one of those special moments. As I mean, I'm a little, little child. I thought, there's something to this. There's a power here. I'm not alone in this little tent. He's here. Now, it took me another 20 years to actually, 30 years to actually go into the ministry. So the presence in the tent was like, what took you so long? But I actually, one day, but I, I remember that. Every time I wondered about my calling, I went back to that situation, went back to that situation. And, I, and when I'm anxious and when I'm discouraged, sometimes I remember what it felt like to be in the presence of the God of all peace. I wouldn't even convert it for another 10, 12 years. But I've always remembered that. Another thought was this idea of without blame. G.K. Beale says this, We are perfected immediately before the final judgment and have nothing for which to be judged for. Nothing for which to be judged for. Some of us are so sense of conscience, we would be happy to give God some stuff that we've really blown just so he can go ahead and accuse us of it. There's something in people that is dying to confess, dying to confess, but it's irrelevant. For the believer, there is nothing for which to be judged for. I start off with John Newton's tombstone, and it's an elaborate tombstone speaking of his sinfulness and all that. John Newton had supporters. He had enough money to inscribe a bunch of words on a tombstone. That was not the case for the Thessalonians. Archaeological digs of Thessalonica, the city in which Paul writes this text, they came across Christian graveyards. And with so many of these Christians, many of them were impoverished slaves. On the tombstones of these Christians, they found inscribed One word, blameless, blameless. That, my friends, sums up Christianity. I'm going to close in prayer. Again, there's two people that listen to every sermon, the lost and the saved, Christians, the non-Christians, those who need to be born again, those who are already born again. 
some of you are not Christians and you need to be saved. You will not enjoy this peace. You will not understand the power of being blameless until you make that step of faith. And you need to do it today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Others of you are just have one foot in the world and one foot outside of the world. And you're miserable because you have not committed yourself to sanctification. So I'm going to close in a prayer and uh, one for the non-believer and one for the believer so that the believer would come over from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so the believer would experience more light. I want you just to agree with that prayer uh, if, if the Lord has put that on your heart. So let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, we do come for you right now. And for those who don't know you, I pray that they would know you. I pray in their heart of hearts, they would say to you, Lord God, I am a sinner in need of a savior. I recognize your claim upon my life and I claim the blood of Jesus Christ and want desperately to be resurrected with him and all the saints of old and to be able to walk in holiness positionally but also practically within the sphere of this life and to see it ultimately one day when I am in heaven. Lord God, make it so. And for those who are struggling to obey, that are lukewarm, that are just having a hard time being the Christian that they know you would want them to be, I pray, Lord God, that they would recognize your great power, your sanctifying spirit to save them, and that they would pursue fellowship, and that they would be immersed in your word, and that you would show them the joy and the peace that comes through obedience. Cast away their addictions, cast away their anxieties, cast away their fears, cast away their regrets. Let them know the power of Christ within their lives. For these two groups of people, Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Amen.